Hello, and welcome to episode 82 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. I had a few announcements for you this week, as usual. Uh, first one is very exciting. The Conj has a, a date and a time and a place now. Uh, I'm talking about Conj 2015. Closure Conj will be held uh, November 16th through 18th in Philadelphia. Uh, the CFP will be coming shortly. You can watch the website at closure-conj.org uh, for more information. Um, I'm pretty thrilled. The Conj is always a good time. It is... You know, certainly one of the most important closure events of the year, and uh, we are thrilled that we now have a, a place to, to hold it um, in Philadelphia, a new location for us, um, but uh, one that is well used to hosting conferences and with which we're familiar, so uh, be very cool. Another thing I want to mention is that the CFP for, and I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this, Closure Tree? I'm not sure. It's uh, C-L-O-J-U and then capital T-R-E. Um, kind of a cool looking name anyway. Uh, the CFP will be open until August 6th. We're talking 2015 again, of course. Uh, this is a conference in, again, not sure how to pronounce this, Tampere, Finland. Uh, so if you're over there in Europe or can get over there, um, that sounds pretty cool. It will be uh, September 11th. Uh, as I said, the CFP is open until the 6th. Uh, you can find them at Klojutra... <laughs> <laughs> C-L-O-J-U-T-R-E.org slash 2015 for this year's conference. Uh, also want to mention, finally, uh, Closure Bridge event. There's one set to run uh, the 8th, uh, sorry, September, yes, sorry, August 14th to 15th in 2015. Um, that's in Denver here in the U.S., so go ahead to closurebridge.org and check that out. So, as usual, lots of good closure goodness going on. There's a few things that we want to mention. So uh, we will leave it there, though, and go on to episode 82 of the Cognicast. Here we go. Well, welcome everybody. Today is Tuesday, June 9th in 2015, and this is the Cognicast. I am pleased to welcome to the show today a uh, developer with Monsanto, a, a polyglot, a podcaster, an all-around interesting person. I'm talking, of course, about Jessica Kerr. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Good morning. Thank you, Craig. Uh, it's great to have you here. Um, you know, your name is one that has definitely come up as we've kicked shows around. Uh, people are, oh, we got to have Jessica on. I'm like, yeah, yeah, finally time to do that. So I'm, I'm glad that we were able to make this happen. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. But uh, before we get into any one of the various topics that I know we could talk about, uh, I want to ask you the question we opened the show with, which is um, to ask you to share an experience of some type of art, uh, whatever, whatever form that takes and whatever that means to you. Just kind of say, hey, listeners, here's, here's a bit of art that I've experienced and, and, uh, and what you think of it or what it meant to you or however you want to do that. Recently, I read a fiction book, an actual fiction book. I think it's been a year since I read one uh, that was amazing. It was recommended to me by several people who work at Stripe. The name of the book is The City and the City. It's about a city that is actually two cities, geographically overlaid and interlaced amongst each other, and the residents of each one are trained from childhood to not see anything that's in the other city, even when it's right in front of them. They are trained to unsee and to focus only on the pieces of the world that are in their city. So residents of one city uh, don't wear the same colors as residents of the other, so they know who not to look at, who to pretend is nowhere nearby. It's fascinating, the descriptions of how this city within the city works and the, the interlacing and, of course, the psychology of choosing your whole life not to see something that's right in front of you. And, of course, the beauty in that is that we do that all the time. Every city 
that we do live in is a city within the city, whether it's along gender divides or racial or culture, it's, it's, or class, there's, there's these cultural uh, differences in everything we see around us and we choose to focus on what's familiar and comfortable to us and just not see the rest. The book is amazing and beautiful and I think there's a detective story in it too, but uh, <laughs> it's very setting um, heavy and I just, I just love it. Uh, a way of taking something we do every day and stretching it so far, it becomes both ridiculous and beautiful at the same time. So that's interesting. I was going to ask you when you started describing it, I had a question in my mind to ask you whether it was a political metaphor, but it sounds like, I mean, red, blue, whatever. I, but it sounds like it's multi-level and that would be, it would be too simple to say that it's just that. I think you could, you can do it anyway. I think probably all of us have different things that are right in front of us that we choose not to see. Very cool. That sounds interesting. I, 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 I seem to recall seeing that, perhaps it was on some recommendation list or somewhere, but I will have to move that up on my reading list. It sounds it sounds really cool. I actually do read a fair amount of fiction myself, so I, uh, that's, that's cool. But I think there are other maybe things that we could talk about, uh, probably mostly in the, firmly in the nonfiction area and technical stuff. Um, you are a, a well-known blogger and tweeter and, and polyglot and... Uh, all, all sorts of stuff, and so I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to even say where to start. I, I guess maybe I'll just uh, start by saying, what are you, what are you up to these days? Like, what's what's cool in your world, and you know, in the in the technical arena. That's a good question. So right now at Monsanto, I'm doing Scala, and we're making microservices infrastructure and deployment to AWS, and that's very cool. And then in my free time, at the moment, I'm on closure, uh, preparing to speak at Polyconf in Poland, and. Um, I'm talking, the talk is about schema enclosure and how those contracts that we can add to our code as schemas that, I mean, that they function as contracts because um, a prismatic schema is like an annotation that you put on either the return value or the parameter of a function. And if it's on a parameter, then it serves as a precondition. It gets checked on the way into the function. Um, or if it's on the return value, it serves as a post condition, getting checked on the way out. But the thing is that even though they're implemented as contracts, they look like types, and they serve a lot of the same purposes as types, which when I first came to Clojure, I suffered greatly from the complete lack of type annotations. I guess my first question is, when you, you say when you came to Clojure, I'm, I'm curious about your trajectory. Where did, where did you come from Clojure? Where did you come to Clojure from? that you had had that experience? Was it was it something like Java or was it something with a more advanced type system? Scala. So it was Scala, okay. So this is interesting actually. So you, you, so Neil Ford gave a really, really good presentation, I thought, at the second Closure Conj that I've referenced here before. Uh, it was called something along the lines of Neil's recipe for world domination. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that there have has been at times a perception of <laughs> going back to your reference at the beginning of the both two cities book, right? The separation of closure versus Scala. And I think um, Neil made an excellent observation, which is that uh, it's really not that. Like in terms of the goals that we all have for our, our favorite languages, things like Scala and uh, closure, I think it's fair to say that most people that are using those would love to see more adoption. And he said, well, look, the real enemy, if there is an enemy per se, is actually Java. It's the status quo. So it's it's interesting to me to get your perspective on that as a person who is using both professionally because I've never used Scala even even a little bit and so uh, I'd love to hear more about how when you came over you missed this now that you're working in Scala and doing closure in your free time like how those worlds intersect and collide for you. The, the two languages are a very interesting study. I'm I'm pretty fascinated by the differences between the languages, sure, but even more so the communities, because when you choose a language these days, you're not just choosing syntax, you're choosing a system, the entire ecosystem of libraries and tools that are available in that language, and you're choosing a community, all the people that work in that language, all the people who are building these tools, and to whom you will turn for help when you have a difficult error message. 
and all of these uh, Scala and Clojure have a lot of overlap in the tool set because they all have access to everything for the JVM. Um, but the language's focus is very different and the communities have a different feel to them, which is really interesting. And you mentioned, Neil, talking about the communities wanting more adoption. And I, and I agree. As a, as a person who's fascinated by both Scala and Clojure, I agree with you. I don't care which interesting language people adopt as long as people are moving forward in their own learning and not sticking with just what they know, but generating more ideas and taking the ideas that other people have and putting them together into something interesting or advancing the new ideas that somebody had, but making them accessible to people who don't have the same level of background. Uh, all of that work is what I love to see people doing, and I don't care what language they do it in. Okay, so that right, and I, that's very cool. I uh, I I feel like maybe I took you off track where we were. I'm glad we went on the side route, but uh, you were talking about about schema and how you were maybe you said initially approaching it as something that you were at least at one point using to fill the gap around uh, where Clojure doesn't have the static typing that Scala has. Right. One thing that drove me insane when it came to Clojure from Scala was that in Clojure, of course, you pass around a bunch of maps with data in them. And you have maps nested in maps, nested in maps. And this is perfectly fine while you're writing the code and you've got all of this in your head and you know what went into those maps and you know where it came from because you just wrote that bit. But when coming back as a different person later and a different person could totally be the same person a month later. Coming back into that, I can't tell what's in that map. I know the data I need is in there somewhere, but where? I don't know. And yeah, I could try it out in the REPL, uh, but that only tells me what's in it in this particular call that I made. It doesn't tell me what's in it all the time, like a type would. A type has all these guarantees, then a type you can dig around in and explore and ask what's in here, and it can tell you, especially if you control click in IntelliJ. Uh, so that was really frustrating to me. But I found that schemas make it okay. Because when I come back to that code, and it's I can't tell at all what's in that map, and I have to go back, and I have to look at the code that populated that parameter, and I'm digging around, and I'm digging around, and I finally figure out what is going to be in there, then I can document that as a schema. It's a map with this structure. It always has these keys. It might have these keys. And ah, uh, yeah, there's probably some other stuff in there too. I can put all of that in the schema and add it in. Now the beauty is that I can stick that schema in by itself in the one function where I really care that it's relevant and I don't have to put it anywhere else. Unlike in Scala where I spend a lot of time fighting the compiler, no really, this is going to work. In Clojure, uh, you know, the, the compiler interpreter or whatever, it's on your side, it's trusting you it's letting you pass whatever you want. And then schema goes in and adds these little checks of, you said you were going to pass this, did you? But you only have to put those where you want them. I use that as documentation so that when I have to do the work of digging around and finding out what's in a function, I can record it. And then it's useful to me later. And it's useful to other people later. And I can verify it in the tests. I go to the existing tests. I turn on schema validations. And I run the existing tests. And every time it hits that function, that adds that little assertion, basically, the check of the contract. So it becomes an additional assertion in every test that calls that function. So I get a lot of what I want out of types. I get some documentation of what's in there, and I get some validation that that is indeed what's going into the function. And the beauty of it is that, well, among other things, uh, that this is in fact, one of the top benefits to static typing. So there are some studies out that I learned about from Andrea Stefik, who's a professor who's spoken at a couple conferences. And the studies show, they compare dynamic typing to static typing, and they show that static typing helps with productivity. Once you're past like your third year in computer science and you really understand the 
concept of passing arguments into function parameters. Uh, static typing improves productivity. Specifically, the piece of static typing that has the biggest effect on productivity is declaring the types of method parameters and return values, or function parameters, uh, because this causes people to use the function correctly. You can put all the doc strings you want. You can put all the tests you want. People don't read those, but they do read the function declaration, and then they're much more likely to use it properly. So that one piece of static typing that is the most useful for improving productivity is exactly what schema does. And it does it in an incredibly low overhead way that you can come back and edit later, but only where it matters. I think it's a big win. Yeah, we've actually, so I've actually used schema a bit. I don't tend to use it on a regular basis. And I'd be interested to hear, it sounds like, so I guess I should ask, have, is this the first time you've used schema extensively? Is it a, a thing you've been doing for a while? I mean, what's, where are you at with your explorations around the, this uh, annotation and closure? So I started Clojure right about a year ago, uh, and in the 10 months that I was full-time Clojure dev at Outpace, uh, about halfway through, I started using Schema. Now, Craig, do you do mostly greenfield development or improving existing programs? It's over the. It depends when you look. I, I, I've talked about the client I was at for a long time, RoomKey. I'm no longer there. That was an existing system. Although within that, I would often develop new systems. So I would say it's a mix. Okay, I find Schema really useful for improving existing systems. In particular, for improving my understanding of a system that already exists. I think Greenfield. It's not nearly as necessary. At least for people who don't want to do type-driven development which sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, and I'll use schema for that too. But I started using schema about halfway through my time at Outpace, and from then on, I thought closure was wonderful <laughs> because it really solved the biggest problem that dynamic typing gave me. Yeah, so, it's, so you've actually got extensive experience. It certainly sounds like more than I have, although I, I have used schema um, non-trivially, just not you know, not for quite as long as you have. And I, I think I have to agree agree with you on the the main value like the way I perceive it at least was was documentation I actually mm -hmm. it's right I mean like you said I mean but the interesting thing for me was I went down a bunch of different routes with that you know everything from schema to uh, core typed for a little while to uh, this homegrown thing that we were doing where I was at at, at the time that was pretty similar um, in a lot of ways to schema um, and, and I always liked the documentation value, but I found that there was, like most things, right, it's a trade-off, right? You're going to do X to get Y, and, you know, that's there's a price involved. And we can talk about that in a second. Um, but the thing I, I found myself wondering about over and over again was, what if I just adopted a convention of putting a type, annot being disciplined about putting a type annotation I'm using the I need something that indicates right, right. quotes on the podcast right yes in yes the doc a type in quotes exactly. anytime we use it about closure yeah, yeah exactly so putting something in like the last line of the doc string would just have to be this takes this and this and returns this Do you, but you don't have tests checking whether you doc string yeah so that was my that's my question for you is is to what extent do you think that I mean I know it's hard to put numbers on these impossible probably but what What's the relative value there? Like the documentation value just from like, yeah, yeah, here's what I was thinking when I wrote this so you can have the model in your head too versus, you know, enforcement of some kind. And obviously there's a range from the compiler to, uh, to tests to something else. If you want to do, I, I, I both hate and love this phrase, reasoning about code, then you want to have axioms that you can trust because otherwise all your reasoning is useless. And the verified schemas are relatively trustworthy compared to doc strings. I mean, it's, it's a degree. You don't have the compiler checking and guaranteeing that it's impossible to call this function without violating the schema. So I think there's a lot of value in having that reassurance that somebody's actually checking on this. Of course, that's only if you wrote the tests and they're good tests. I think uh, it combines beautifully with Generative testing, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, that once you have a generative test along with 
your inline assertions as schemas uh, that you get pretty close to um, the level of certainty a compiler gives you uh, with a lot less overhead. You mentioned overhead. Sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to cut you off here in the middle of thought. Uh, no, actually, I totally lost my train of thought. So. Okay, well, we can we can go down a different track. And you mentioned overhead, and I think uh, that's kind of what I was clumsily getting at with um, you know mention of costs versus value. Because you said right. there's a lot of value in the verification. But I, what I found is that if I'm not careful, and maybe I'm just not good enough at it, and this is something I need practice or guidance in, is that it was easy for me to set up a system whereby I was either overly specific or let the the constraint like the constraints be too tight and made excessive coupling between parts of my system such that you know I want to add a key to this thing as a, as a trivial example over here and then it kind of ripples through and I have to change a lot of things I mean ah. I think people have seen that you know that's an old an old complaint if you will about unit tests right is like I wrote the tests and now I make unit a change, and now I've got to change evil. 20 tests. Right, and so I, I mean, or I unit probably... tests done wrong or evil. That's, unit that's tests right. done so at I... too low a level and too great a quantity. Right, so I guess what I'm asking is, you know, what, what advice would you give people uh, to make sure that if they're using something like schema, um, that would help them use it correctly so that they avoid some of those types of mistakes, if that makes any sense? Right, right. The the mistake. So one of the beauties of closure, for instance, is that when you're doing TDD, you can write a test that passes only the data that's relevant to that test into your function, and then get the output and do it. And then as you add functionality, you start passing more and more data in. As soon as you add a schema that says this function gets this key and that key and the other key, you just broke all those tests that didn't pass those other keys because they weren't relevant to that particular test. So one of the alternatives here is if you create test.check generators for the, air quotes, type of this schema, then it'll have all those required keys every time you sample the generator. And then I go to those unit tests where only one of the fields is relevant, use the generator, change the one relevant field, and then every time I add something to that uh, schema type, I go and I change the generator. So I'm making that change in one place. There's one generator, one piece of code that's responsible for producing a valid, whatever it is, for all my tests. So that, that's one thing. There, there's another piece, though, uh, that Schema gives you that lets you make this balance in a way that, say, Scala doesn't help you with. And that is you don't have to be specific. You can say... You can make the keys optional. You can say it has this key and this key and anything else. Or you can be super specific and say it has exactly this key and it's one of these three values at all times. There's a whole spectrum inside schema and you don't have to be more specific than is valuable to you. Yeah, I think that, that whole idea of an open um, uh, data type that we use a lot is super valuable um, and something that I think I probably underuse and I think as a community we probably underuse but you know every an once open a, data type? yeah it, what I mean is the map is a, it's a data type right ah, like it for okay. in a less strict sense than you know something like a Java class but it's open right I can stick anything I want in there right any key and any key and value pair um, and to be able to hang other stuff on it records are the same way in closure right like I don't know if people know this but when you declare a record you know def record you know, you say it's going to have these slots, if you will. Um, but it's actually possible to associate more data in, and I think that's actually a very important attribute of uh, yeah, closure. You know it's, it's, it's not really one of those things that jumps out at you. And then when I found out about it, at least I was like, okay, that's really cool. And I've actually made good use of that at time. You can attach, you know, whatever you want. It's, it's, you can just associate onto it, and it retains its... Uh, I believe it retains its type. It does retain its type, so you can, you don't lose anything like protocol implementations over the record type, et cetera. And I think that uh, having that is a is kind of a is a good thing. And I I would miss it if I didn't have it available. That's neat. So it's more like a Ruby class. Yeah, I think it, right in this in this right in the sense of being able to to tack things on. That's right. Absolutely. Right. Ruby class, you can add instance or class. Yeah, instance variables. You can add methods to an instance 
Right, that's right. So in this case, it would be data, right? It's not about, I mean, pro, right, We sep in closure, of course, we separate the behavior stuff. I'm not adding yeah. a, a method. I would use something like protocol extension to do that. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can, I can associate onto a record just like I can onto a map. Um, and so I guess to, sorry, to loop back to what you were talking about before I got very excited about records, you know, you were saying it sounds like the, the key is really about how you organize your code so that you don't unnecessarily commit in too many places. Do you think that's the right uh, aspect is like how many places you say this is the precise shape of this thing? Like, cause it sounded to me like you're saying the important part was that the generator be the, the well, the schema, of course, and then the generator be the one place where I kind of commit to the shape of a, of a, of a particular um, value. Right. I, I do think that in a rigorous closure code base, that you're trying to be really good with your testing and thorough, that there's a pair between a schema and a generator, and that those two are different sides of the coin, in a sense, that the generator for testing and the schema, or the generator for producing for testing and the schema for verifying and documenting. Because the generator is a form of documentation, too. It says, what is, what, what is validated? input what's the full range of valid input because in your schema you might just check that this is an integer but in your generator you might express that it's ridiculous for that integer to be negative or bigger than a thousand the generator is uh, a place to express all the data that you could possibly expect uh, the data that you require your code to handle to be considered bug free uh, so that's interesting because it sounds to me like there's a notion of the of a type that actually spans um, that spans both the schema description and the generator. You, you know what I mean? Like, let's say I wanted to model 53-bit number because I think that's numbers in JavaScript, if I remember right, are 53 bits, which is, of oh. course, they're 53 bits. Anyway, um, <laughs> like, what a logical number. But uh, but let's say you wanted to model that a 53-bit number, right? So I know that schema does have extensions where you could say things like I'm going to attach a, you know, a function that verifies that it's not greater than whatever two to the fifty third is. But from what you were saying in programs that you're writing, you might structure it such that that is actually captured in the, in the generator. Would you would you do it that way, or would you put the, the constraint on the magnitude in both places, or how do you, you know what I mean? How would you how would you make those things work together in that case? It, it depends how how thorough I'm trying to be, and it depends what's what's more clear. And maybe having that additional check in the schema would add enough burden to reading the schema that it wouldn't be worth it. But then again, if this is like an important feature of the data that I'm expecting in, that I might name that that predicate schema, name it JavaScript number, and put that in there. The, the, goal, the goal is to reduce the cognitive load on the reader of the code. Uh, Kathy Sierra, in a video I was watching the other day, talked about how the best thing we can do for our users is just not burden their brains. Don't make them learn something, don't make them figure something out, don't make them be surprised and have to dig around to figure out how to do something because, or in this case, to figure out what the function they're reading that they want to use needs. Uh, make that really obvious and clear to them. And the other thing she talked about was confidence. In, in the example of a user interface, you want your button to press when you click on it you want to give the user feedback you pushed this so that the user has confidence that they did push it and the brain isn't going did you push it did that click work did you push it did, did that click work <laughs> which is a cognitive load that is distracting them from whatever their actual problem is they're solving which they're reading your code in order to do something else they're not reading your code out of love of great parentheses literature <laughs> Uh, so I think that the schema is, is really about that to me. It's how can I not require them to go to a doc string or go to a test, not require them to parse my closure code. Closure devs and Ruby devs, they both love to read code. And, you know, that makes them better developers. But 
that's not what I want to do and I just want to use a function, I want to keep my mind on the problem I'm solving, not on figuring out what this function does by reading its code. Uh, right. So in the schema, you know, do you want to include that predicate? Well, are they going to have to parse that predicate and say, what on earth does this mean? In which case, no, I don't want it in there. But I, I could put it in the generator to make sure the generator's like producing good test data. Um, and you don't usually go look at the generator unless you're like really digging into what what kind of data this is. Whereas the schema should be much more accessible, in my opinion. It should be super readable. On the other hand, if the essence of what's coming in is that it's a number that came from JavaScript, then a JavaScript number schema has a nice name, nice ring to it. And then I would put it in. Well, I think I think you've I mean identified at least two dimensions there, right? One is names, and of course we know that that's one of the two hard things in computer science ah, is naming, right? I love names. Yeah. You, oh, totally. So you love you love naming things, or you love good names, or what? What about naming is is that that, that gets you? I love giving a thing a name. Is it if oh. only if you have a good one, or just in general? <laughs> yeah, only only if I have a good one. Which is a sign that it's that it, that I'm doing it right. If there is a good name for something, then I've probably written a good cohesive thing. Yeah, I agree. What do you what do you use for inspiration? Because I mean, I, a lot of the times, what I find is that uh, there's a name for something, but it's it's something that's just used a million times. Object oh, or system transaction. Yeah, exactly. So, do you have a technique that you use in order to come up with better? I mean, there's always the, the thesaurus, of course. Do you have yeah, anything else to use? Sometimes I will Google it. I will avoid words like transaction or data. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I will resort to input sometimes when I'm like, I don't know what's coming in here, but it's definitely the input. That's a really good question. And, and I, of course, I don't have the solution to that other than to set my pair on it if I'm typing. Uh, the other thing that I'll do is if I can't come up with a good name, I'll go with a stupid name over a deceptive name. Mm. So I'll put like banana as a placeholder before I'll put something that's kind of right but not literally correct. Because if if I can't def if I can't tell the person what it is, I don't want them thinking they know what it is and having a de deceptive name. I'd rather it be really obvious that the name is not telling them anything. So would you, do you have some part of your process where you make sure that you come up with good names before you commit, or would you leave that in there until the right name arises, or what's, what's going on with that? I might leave that in there until code review, and then people will be like, Jess, that's another really stupid name. And I'll be like, good, you come up with something better. <laughs> and then we have multiple people with multiple perspectives. And often the, the people from the other perspective can come up with uh, a name that fits because they're coming at it from an outside view. You, you know, code reviews is something I don't think we've really talked about on this show very much. And it's honestly something that I haven't really done much hmm. formally. I mean, obviously, you know, I've paired a lot and that's a form of code review. And I've yes, certainly, yes. yeah, and I've certainly presented my code to other people, but I, I can't say I've worked in an organization where like rigorous, like well-structured, frequent code reviews were a part of the engineering practices on a routine basis. Have, have you, and if so, I'd love to hear about what you think works uh, for code reviews. Uh, no, not like in a rigorous, structured sort of ritual, uh, but I have seen some things that work for code review. Uh, certainly, if if I want to make a change to an app that someone else is has done most of the development on, I'm going to make a pull request and ask them to review the code. That's on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, also, at Outpace, uh, some of the teams had a cool tradition of Friday afternoon code review where they'd take, like, three hours at the end of a Friday and they might have a beer and or beverage of choice. Since everybody's at home, we get to pick. Uh, and go in depth on a code review of some important piece of the code. So it's not about is it new. It, it's about the important pieces of the application and make sure everyone really understands them. And at the same time, you've got uh, a wide enough time range that you can get in depth on style discussions and trade-offs. And, and people enjoyed it. Yeah, I've, I've done 
Oh, okay, sorry. Oh, that was it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've, I've done yeah something similar at user groups where we'll sit down and take a piece of code and, and go through it. And I think it's really fun to do that with um, people who have a range of ability. Um, I mean, I know the people that are outpaced, and you know, those are some really good devs. But it was fun even with um, like beginners in the mix because you'd say, "Well, I'd probably change this," and I, you know, I'd use here I would use reduce KV or whatever instead of a reduce. And they're like, oh, I didn't know about that. That's pretty cool. I think it was a nice way, a nice way to spread that type of experience as well. Oh, but, true. Or if the beginners can point out the pieces of code that are not obvious to people who aren't um, yes. swimming in it. Right. Yeah, that perspective is actually, I mean, we've all had that experience of, and I think this goes to a lot of what you were talking about with documentation, where... Uh, once you kind of enter a problem space um, and you're in it, it becomes really, really difficult, at least for me, I suppose, to maintain that perspective of what would somebody who's just walking up to this experience and how do I need to change things in order to address that? I think for me, user interfaces are like that. If I'm trying to put a UI over something that I've done, you know, it often winds up looking like something that we would typically describe as being done by a developer because I'm projecting my internal model um, which is, go ahead. Exactly. And the the declaration of your function is the UI to your function hmm. to anyone who's going to use it. Hmm. And it is really hard, but it's also the most important thing we can do. Uh, what what we're doing to build up a program is abstraction at every level, right? Each little function is an abstraction, and the name and the declaration that's the outside of the abstraction. And the abstraction is only useful if it reduces the cognitive load of the person using it because they don't have to go in it. They don't have to go past that nice UI that you've presented to them. Hmm. That, I like that uh, analogy a lot, the, uh, the idea that the, um, the declaration, I'd be curious to hear what you think about the doc string as well. Uh, but it makes me think I want to write a mode for Emacs or you know whatever other tool people are using would be interesting too, where it collapses a file so that it hides only the body and then say if you do that, so you can still see the name, the the you know the arguments and the doc string. Well, Although, yeah, and it could collapse the private functions too. Oh, interesting. So that would be another way to do it, and then and then to for whatever subset you wind up with, say, can you understand this file? this library well enough to use it just based on that. I think that would be an interesting heuristic. Yeah, that's declarative programming, right? If it if the function declaration can say what the function does such that you don't have to dig in and care about how. Now, when you say declaration, are you including the doc string or you or do you specifically mean like an annotated argument list? For me, it's the, it's about the annotated argument list. I mean, the doc string is pretty clearly F1 help. Like like we you put Push F1 on Windows, or mm -hmm. uh, that, that's the man page for the function, right? Man page, okay. So when you want to get, I mean, when you need to understand it, when you want to know what options are available, you need to consult the doc string. Um, but I don't want to have to consult the doc string. I want uh, to be able to just type ls, hit enter, and it gives me that little summary. I kind of see. Um, just the the really the usage right the usage of a Unix command would correspond to the parameters and return value the function declaration and the man page would correspond to the doc string. So I guess that that's that leaves me wondering if you have some sort of mechanism in your declarations for communicating semantics. I mean, other than the names, obviously those can be descriptive and to some degree communicate semantics. But I feel like the shape of a piece of data, which is where I feel something like schema is existing, is really about the syntax, if you will. It's not really semantics. And I feel like the doc string would communicate semantics, and that semantics, rather, it would be the only place you could communicate semantics, and that semantics are an essential part of being able to make use of, the, of a, a function or whatever other level of granularity we're talking about. You know, I, I agree, and I also think that uh, narrative prose is highly underrated in our industry. Um, and you're right, the uh, the schema can 
describe the shape and what's included and the, the components of each input. And it can put boundaries around what might be in there. Uh, but at some point, you need to understand what the meaning of that thing is. Now, whether that's in the doctrine of the function or like at the top of the file or in the readme of your library, at some point, you're going to need these are the pieces of whatever it is you're trying to do that I can't abstract away. This is the meaningful bit that you really need to make these decisions. Um, so I'm trying to come up with an example. In, in schema itself, uh, the, there's a big duck string at the top of the file that says, what is a schema? What is it good for? Documentation is their primary use, and I agree with that. Um, and how would you use it? Here are some examples. Uh, and then here are some places to go, to, to like functions that can provide you with schemas for various things. So there's that that map of of um, schema, quote unquote, type to semantic meaning, like at the top of the the library. Uh, so yeah, yeah, you're right. You do need that somewhere. Sometimes that's in the doc string for a function, but somewhere you've got to like tell the story of the purpose of the function. One of the things I found was that, so first of all, for a long time, I did not know that namespaces can can have doc strings. They totally can. Mm. <laughs> NS, you know, foo, and then the string, that's actually the doc string for the namespace. And you can dock, you can call dock on a namespace. And uh, I've, I've, I've moved to where, so I try to always have doc strings on functions, but I also try to always have doc strings on namespaces. I find them to be more difficult to write because it's, it's just at a level of, you know what do I say about all these things? The one thing that I that I'm sure about, well, <laughs> sure might be too strong a word. The one thing that I definitely tend to use the namespace for is anytime I have to use two functions or two or more functions together to accomplish a task, I think that's the right place for that is the namespace doc string because one of the issues with a function doc string is if you only use those and you've got to use you know two, three, four functions together. You know, there's this temptation to kind of reference, to repeat yourself in all four or whatever of the doc strings to say, well, you, you know, use X, Y, and Z. But uh, one thing that I've done recently is you can actually just say C doc, the namespace name in the doc string, and that winds up being super helpful because somebody docs a function, and they're like, okay, this is this part, but then I, it says right here, I should type doc com dot dot whatever and get the, the overall documentation for the namespace, which includes the docs that tie those multiple different functions together, and then you could drill into those to get the individual descriptions, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. Um, because functions, I mean, if they exist on their own, then I'm, oh, I've, I've got a whole ideas around functions that exist on their own and should be imported individually. Uh, but when your function is part of a larger purpose, such as it's the uh, function that produces a schema for protocols, hmm. um, then yeah, you need to reference that. And it is it is challenging to write that higher level documentation. In fact, I think it's one of the core challenges of programming and a distinguishing factor between that makes a great developer that ability to zoom in and out between the tiny details of implementation to a little bit back to why is this function here so that you can write that doc string. And I don't want anybody thinking I'm arguing against doc strings. I, I'm always very happy when they're there. I also don't trust them. Um, <laughs> and then you need to zoom out to the namespace level. Why am I writing these functions at all and how do they fit together? Uh, and then it gets even more challenging when you're zooming out to like the module level, to the application level, to the business unit level, uh, to the company level of why am I implementing this tiny detail? At some point, it's to make money. Mm -hmm. uh, and maintaining that that connection all the way up from the business purpose to, well, it's to make money if you're you know, at work. Mm -hmm. um, from the business purpose down to why we're implementing this app, down to what the point of this module is, 
and what the impact of this module is going to be all the way down to the function in the line of code level is physically painful when I try to think about it at all those <laughs> levels. But it also gives me the perspective to know, uh, to, to make good decisions at the detailed level, including to know when to give up, to be like, oh my God, this is so much harder than I thought it was. It's time to try a completely different tack and zoom out two levels and go use something else. Hmm. I think pair programming totally helps with that because you can have a pair at a higher level of abstraction and a pair down in the details typing. Uh, but I also think it's the purpose of an architect uh, on the team uh, that the architect's job is to have just a little broader view uh, because if you focus on the broader view, I have a tendency to do this at work lately since I'm on the IT strategy and architecture team now, Ooh. Uh, is to, to take this broader view. And while that's super valuable and I've really been able to help my team gain greater focus and focus on the right things by, by doing that, zooming out, zooming in, I can't do that and code in the same day. I mean, well, certainly not in the same afternoon. Um, it's it's expensive. So somebody on your team needs to really have that. Maybe it's the product owner. Um, maybe it's the, the team lead. Uh, and and that, that if you maintain that perspective within the team, then you can free some people on the team to just focus at the low level, which is particularly fun in Clojure when you get into all the little, how can I manipulate this data structure puzzles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I continue to enjoy that. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's fascinating, I, and I and I'd love to ask you, you know, because we've kind of spent, a, <laughs> actually, there's so many things we could talk about, but you just you we were talking so far, to some degree, I think, about um, documentation, if you will. I mean, it's really I, I think you nailed it when you talked about making, you know, trying to enable people to successfully have a mental model of the code, right? And, right, of just what they need to know mm -hmm. and nothing else. So so then we were talking about different levels of abstraction. And given you know you have this role, I wonder what you have found to be useful tools or techniques for doing that task. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to present a model of the system or component or you know module or whatever. You know, because we've talked about a few things like schema that you can maybe use to help at one level, but obviously those things don't apply when you get up to whole systems or... Oh, so true. So what do you have favorite techniques or things that you've discovered work well for you? The current things that I'm working with, um, I think you can look at it as there's like the PowerPoint level and then there's like the Word level and then there's the code level. And while the schemas help really well at the code level, the um, doc string at the top of the namespace is more like the word document level where you can tell a bit of story of why you're doing this. And then uh, that translates uh, in my team plan that translates into oh shoot, what do they call it? A climate corp. Uh, there's there's like a work plan of for the next three months our team's goals are these and then we're going to try to accomplish this um, and we're going to measure it by this other mechanism them for like five different what we're going to do for three months is and that goes into a document two or three pages that tells a story I think that is missing from a lot of project pro hmm. processes it's certainly missing from ours but what we do have is the higher level at the PowerPoint level that's where you get up into the business purpose sort of level I like to do that in Prezi so I make what what I personally call map it's like a roadmap except uh, multi-dimensional it's not there's not just one path to our goal uh, so the C map and I've got a blog post on this I'll make it in Prezi and at the top I'll put the mountain of what I'm trying to accomplish in this quarter maybe and then I'll zoom down and make smaller mountains leading up toward that so you can like sail your boat around between the mountains at least that's what I'm doing in my head of the the goals that are going to build into the larger milestone. And the beautiful thing about Prezi is that I can continue to zoom in and get down to that smaller mountain, which might 
be a goal for my sprint. And I can zoom into what I'm doing today and what my other team members are doing today. And I can put their little boats on the map of what they're working on. And then I can zoom in as far as I need to because usually there's 18 levels of yak shaving involved <laughs> in something that sounds very simple. If I need to, I can picture all of those. This is particularly useful for my personal projects where it, it might be a week before I get back to it. But I've got a C-map that I can go look at, and there's my little bird symbol that represents me because it's my GitHub icon or whatever. And I can see where I am and why I was doing that. And I can put little monster pictures when something surprises me and I've got to go fight the monster somehow, and that's you know, another yak to shave. That really helps me keep track of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. For instance, for this uh, polyconf talk, that I'm prepping for, I have an objective of um, writing a Linogen template for a, a four-project structure that has schemas and generators and other things that I think are good. Uh, but in order to make that, I need to make I need to make Linogen's template engine work differently, which I can because it's all closure. And so I'm working on that in another place, and then I need a tool for that, so I write it over there. But then I need a way to import that small tool that just, say, there's one that just lists the files in a directory along with, um, what, I forgot. I forgot what it does. <laughs> it lists the files in the directory in the format that I need in order to use them in a line engine template. And it's basically one function. And I want to develop this function and test it separately and then I want to bring it into my Linogen template and I want to do this and now we're getting into a whole um, another conceptual yak. Um, <laughs> conceptual I've... yak is my new band name by the way. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Um, but but the, the interesting stuff is in the minutiae but it's but I've got to keep track of as I go deeper and deeper into this now I'm writing a tool that will copy the function that I need and its test into another closure project so that I can import, in air quotes, this utility without uh, exploding my dependency graph, uh, but I can still have it and I can work on it separately and test it separately and upgrade it separately. Um, right, so now I'm writing a program that does that, but while I'm writing that, I hit on like, this, there's an interesting point in testing that program because I go to test this program that just copies two files and I'm like, oh, it's so hard to test things that interact with a file system. But I know how to deal with that. I know how to like isolate the beginning and isolate the, the um, side effects at the end that actually do the writing. And so once I implement that, I'm like, oh, I can totally blog about this. So something that I started like six yak levels up becomes the really interesting bit of minutiae, and that blog post is, is uh, I think it's on Hacker News today, actually, about ultra-testable coding style. I saw that, yeah. Isn't, now, there's some great, great naming. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of random, and I love it. Marketing. It's marketing. It's good stuff. <laughs> cool. So uh, you're basically I using this CMAP. I mean, it sounds like a couple things. One is to help you figure out the plan, but also to not get lost. Is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. As I get down farther and farther into the weeds, I'm like leaving my little breadcrumbs so that I can follow my way back up and I can decide, okay, this totally isn't worth it. I'm just going to skip writing this line engine template entirely because I only have a few weeks and I need to go uh, write parameterized type schemas. <laughs> so oh, over to the next mountain. That's very cool. I like your hierarchy of um, documentation, PowerPoint, Word doc strings. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a neat concept. And the CMAP thing sounds really cool. And I had never thought of using Prezi to match the conceptual hierarchy, um, but that, that also makes a ton of sense. That's very cool. I may have to uh, play around with that a bit. I've done a bit with Prezi, and it's a neat tool. Um, yeah, cool. Prezi's really painful in some ways, but nothing else has this zoom in, zoom out capability. Uh, plus, there's, there's a beauty to it. Plus, I, I needed, like, mountains that looked just, that, that worked for me, and I wound up um, drawing them on paper. I mentioned art at the beginning of the yes. show. 
And while I went with the, the, the book rack, uh, one thing that art really does for me is when I've been thinking a lot, coding and, and getting really technical, I often need to step back and output in art in some ways. Hmm. Um, at a simplest level, it could just be singing or like beating on something and pretending it's a drum. But more often I'll draw and like, I, I mean, I maybe spent an hour drawing like mountains and um, various other pieces uh, of the map that became the map project map. I can like picture the data flow as if, as if this were a fantasy novel and you've got mountains and valleys and rivers and forests because Hadoop is totally like a forest. Um, so I, I wind up expressing my understanding of the code in a drawing, and I'm not an artist, uh, but uh, not me. So they're really crude, but that doesn't matter. In fact, the, the very crudeness of them, thank goodness for our industry, is charming to people. <laughs> um, and that that's both an expression that sort of like settles my brain in a better understanding of what I'm thinking about. And also it's, it's just a satisfying output of, I made something with pretty colors. And since I'm a backend developer, I don't get to make pretty colors in with my code. It, it's, it's a great switch up. I highly recommend just getting some Sharpies and maybe a giant post-it pad and uh, expressing yourself that way. And that's that high level visual PowerPoint level presentation where you can do mind mapping and things like that. Uh, it's, it's really helpful. So I'm curious. I mean, that sounds like a really cool idea. And we've talked a bit before about the connection between art and other thing, uh, other, you know, technical pursuits on this show before, but, but you mentioned, so I can totally understand, you know, drawing pictures. That's something that I can connect to the process of developing a system, but you also mentioned singing and drumming is is that the same type of thing where you're singing or drumming about the problem you're working on? Or is it just a, I'm distracting myself so that the other part of my brain can be free to work through problems? Or Sometimes I feel like uh, there's something in my head that needs expressed and it's not going to come out in words. But it might come out in sounds. And then that sort of settles back into my head and then there's words. So sometimes you, I'll just draw random stuff too. Do you ever do this when you're pairing? Hmm. No. <laughs> That's too I bad. I might draw while I'm pairing, but yeah. Hmm. I do talk to my computer a lot. Well, one thing that's beautiful about pairing is I'm going to talk out loud whether I'm there's someone in front of me or not. Yeah, I'm the same way. <laughs> pairing has an excuse. <laughs> that's right. Yep. I'm right there with you. Well, cool. Well, I, you know, this is really fascinating, but I, I, I do think we probably do have to respect your time um, a, a bit, uh, and uh, and and let's just have you back on because I can tell already we have barely gotten through a tenth of the things that we could talk about. Um, we'll have you back on sometime. Uh, before we go, though, I like to make sure that our that I give my guests a chance and leave room so there's plenty of time for this for them to talk about anything that they wanted to get uh, to on the show today. Um, you know, it's fine if not, but if there's anything that you're particularly excited about that we didn't get a chance to talk about, let's uh, let's let's jump into that before we before we wrap oh. up. Okay, so I I mentioned that thing about about the the one function that I wanted to import into my other project uh, without creating a dependency mm -hmm. graph. Uh, so right, dependency hell is one of the unsolved problems in our industry, and one thing I'd like to bring to attention of listeners so that other people can be thinking about it's something uh, I've discussed a bit with like C Spencer and um, Jorge another friend of mine but not all dependencies should be linked the way Maven dependencies are where uh, you declare transitive dependencies and um, Somebody might import your project, and then you might actually wind up working with a, a higher version of the library than you declared, and that's just so confusing. And at the same time, uh, something 
we really experienced it outpaced, but it's everywhere, really. Everybody winds up with these util files mm-hmm. or util libraries. And um, at Outpace, we made what is, in my opinion, the big mistake of putting a whole bunch of utilities in a library that everybody was supposed to use. But it's like, really, you only want one function, but if you want to upgrade the version of the library so you can get that function, then you have to upgrade everything else. And um, like your SQL stuff is impacted by the date formatting that you want to upgrade. No, that's just a mess. There is a place for cut and paste. Or if you think about it in C, you used to pound import a header file, and that basically had the effect of copying the header file in the preprocessing step into your code. There is a place for that, I think, in every language of, I just want this date, this additional date formatting functionality, and you know what, I don't really want to import a whole date library, I just want this function, so what do you do? Um, people don't want to repeat themselves, so they wind up linking in whole libraries and creating more dependency hell. I think you should just cut and paste it into your project into a little util place. But of course, cutting and pasting is dangerous because uh, do you have the tests for it? And do you, um, you have no way of upgrading it? If you do find a bug, you don't know who else is using it or who else you cut and pasted that to. Uh, typically, enclosure will just wind up writing the function again because that's the easiest thing to do. But then we didn't write a test for it. I think we can get the best of both if we say sometimes we want dependencies Maven style and other times we want them C style, basically just imported into my project uh, with something more rigorous than cut and paste. So what I'm thinking about is a sort of micro library that I want to call a libit uh, because it's a library bit Uh and because that rhymes with ribbit and then there could be a frog (laughs) that's good Um, i love it (laughs) yeah yeah so so you could write a microlibrary like my one list files function that i wanted to write separately because it's conceptually its own thing but then i want to be able to copy it into the project that's going to use it in a way that will make it available in that project but won't won't bother anybody who imports that project, won't ever conflict because it's just cut and pasted. But the tests are also uh, brought in at the same time. So the little program just you know it goes and it copies the source and the test file and it puts them in the destination project under like libit, which because util is way overused. Uh, so like the myproject.libit.list file, mm-hmm. whichever one I brought in. Uh, right, so it's kind of like a more rigorous version of cut and paste. And hypothetically, you know, if I made some fixes or improvements to my microlibrary, I could bring it in and then it would be, I would update the libit in the destination project. I think this would be really cool. Uh, I'm not go- going to write it anytime soon because after this closure talk, I'm speaking at a React conference, so I need to learn React a little, little bit. And after that, it's Scala property-based testing at Strangeloop. Um, but I think this is an important idea that not all dependencies are the same, that the different styles of dependency where it's kind of like node every, I think in node, uh, if you import something, you get that version. If somebody else imports it, they get their version, which can cause conflict if they ever cross over. Um, that style of dependency versus the Maven style where it all resolves to whoever declared the highest version. Uh, there's places for both of that. Not all dependencies are created equal. I think that's something to think about. I think you're absolutely right. I've, I have uh, similar thoughts that I won't bore you with right now around uh, how I think we are largely naive around how we uh, equate projects, uh, artifacts, and dependencies, and, 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 and repositories, I think, in particular projects Projects, artifacts, and repositories are generally one-to-one-to-one enclosure, and I think that's um, that's a pretty limited approach. But, um, right. <laughs> but I think that's a super cool idea that you have, and I'd love to see uh, when you do get a chance to um, make it happen, or if maybe somebody hears your idea and riffs on it, that'd be cool too. Um, I do have a Git- GitHub repo, Josephtron slash microlib, that, uh, yeah, I mean, the code is totally um, minimal. It's an MVP where 
an MVP is not a product, it is a test of, is this useful to me? And if so, maybe I'll spend more time on it. Uh, but the README expresses these ideas if you want to um, look at that. Very cool. We will definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but I think we've probably um, used as much of your time today as we can. And uh, there is one more question that, that I want to ask you that I warned you about before the show. That's our <laughs> traditional ending question, which is uh, if there's any advice you'd like to share with our listeners, whether that's advice that you've received or advice you'd like to give or just in general advice you think is good or I suppose bad. Nobody shared bad advice yet that they thought was bad. <laughs> that's an option. Um, but what would you like to uh, to lay on our listeners? Uh one thing my grandmother used to say, and my grandmother was really amazing. She um, just got along with everybody. It was a fantastic conversation. She used to say, know a little bit about a thousand different things, just enough to have a conversation about them so that you can have a conversation with a lot of different people about whatever it is they like. I think that fits with a polyglot programming language philosophy of know a little bit about each language language, know the core bits so that you can compare and contrast it, its ideas and essences to others. There's another little bit that occurred to me yesterday, which is know a little bit about a thousand things so you can talk about them. But it's even better if you don't know as much as the person you're talking to, because then you get to learn and they get excited about teaching you about something that they know about. So don't feel like you need to know much about a language in order to talk about it. Sometimes it's better to be uh, a beginner. Excellent. I love it. And I, I think, uh, you know, you you described uh, uh, being able to listen to people who know a lot about a topic and, and get excited by their enthusiasm. That was certainly true for me today. I really enjoyed the conversation. I, I really hope we can have you back on again. <laughs> we don't even have to wait for you to do new things. I think there's plenty of things you've already done that we didn't get a chance to get to today. But I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. It was a, it was a pleasure to have you. So thank you very much. Thank you, Craig. It was great fun. Yeah, Happy I'm... to talk to you anytime. Well, good. It doesn't I'm... have to be on the show either. I, well, that's cool because I'm also going to be at Strange Loop, so I was glad to hear that you're going to be there. Be interested to see your talk uh, if I get a chance to make it and uh, to. Uh, Mine's to make... a workshop. Oh, okay. Well, then I'll I was, see you. It's like I don't want to do a talk this year. That's too much. Too much pressure. I want to enjoy the conference. <laughs> but the workshop is the day before. That's right. It's always good to go at the beginning because then you can actually not have to sweat it the rest of the time. So exactly. Awesome. Well, that's good that I'm going to get to see you there. Um, but we will go ahead and close it down there. Uh, thanks again, Jessica, and thanks to our listeners. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to The Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. Our guest today was Jessica Kerr on Twitter at Jessitron, J-E-S-S-I-T-R-O-N. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.